Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, April 23rd, and we've got a roundup of financials news. Yet another Wells Fargo fine, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs earnings, and a data breach at SunTrust. I'm your host, Michael Douglas, and I'm joined by Matt Frankel. Matt, welcome back. Let's hop right in because really quite a bit of interesting news for us to talk about today. First off, Wells Fargo fined a billion dollars from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Right. And the big deal is not so much that it's a billion dollars. That's really not that much to a bank like Wells Fargo. Um, we saw much, much bigger fines a few years ago in the aftermath of the financial crisis. Um, this is significant for a few reasons. One, it's the largest penalty ever levied by the the CFPB. Right. Um, uh, and it's just kind of the latest chapter in Wells Fargo's drama. It's not just this $1 billion fine. It's that this is We'll go through in a minute, but this is, you know, the seventh or eighth major news headline they've had in the past year or two. Yeah. And so with that in mind, let's go ahead and break down exactly what happened with this penalty. And then, as you noted, we'll exp- expand back further. So they had wrongly charged insurance on some drivers, right? Uh, and they charged mortgage customers excessive fees. And this affected over half a million customers, about $600,000. Uh, sorry, about 600,000 customers. And just the refunds on those fees will cost the bank about $300 million in addition to the billion dollars that they've already paid out. Right. And um, the, I'll just give you a little bit of background on both of those. The mortgage incident, they kind of they admitted to right away uh, what was happening was they would agree to lock in customers' rates for a certain amount of time based on them getting their paperwork in by a certain deadline. And if they didn't, they were subject to a fine. Well, Wells Fargo themselves were responsible for this paperwork being late in a lot of cases and were still charging these customers hefty fines, Um, which obviously, you know, that's just bad business. Right. Um, And in the car insurance case, that was the bigger of the two. The car insurance was about 500,000 out of the 600,000 people. Um, and this is a, a standard industry practice is that banks can, you know, force you to get in an, an auto insurance policy of their choosing if your current coverage lapses. It kind of, you know, the bank is loaning you money on the car, so it kind of protects them to have insurance. Right. Um, but Wells Fargo is doing this for people who had insurance. Um, I was actually one of the ones who got a note in the mail. I don't know if I ever told you this, Michael, but I was one of the ones who got a note in the mail saying that my insurance had lapsed and they were about to start this new policy on me if I didn't do anything about it. Uh, fortunately, I you know realized their error and pointed it out, but a lot of people didn't. And um, this was a – and their insurance policies, from what I read, were very expensive relative to what people were paying on their current insurance. Yeah, so just all around, as you put it, kind of bad business. And let's, let's go ahead and step back because, I mean, listen, every company makes mistakes. No company is perfect. Wells Fargo has been making quite a few of them, it seems. So heading all the way back to September 2016, um, the fake account scandal, which many of you have heard about, if not on Industry Focus, then on you know, literally every major news program in America, um, was revealed. That was initial estimates said about 2 million accounts were affected um, by fake accounts that um, were opened in people's names without their knowledge by bank employees who were trying to hit quotas. 5,300 employees were fired. The CEO, John Stumpf, retires in October. And, of course, it just continues from there. 
yeah, and um, that's a pretty big number, two million people, and so it's it's uh, chances are pretty high that some of our listeners were affected by this, right? Um, so if that was bad enough, then over the next, you know, from then until now, uh, December of 2016, the bank was punished for failing to comply with certain Dodd Frank regulations. Um, June of the next year, that's when this mortgage. Uh, the mess happened where they were charging people for late paperwork that wasn't really late on their fault. Um, the next month in July of 2017, that auto insurance mishap was revealed. Um, then the next month in August, that number of fake accounts went from two million to three and a half million because uh, they kind of widened the time frame they were looking at and found a whole lot more. Right. Um, and I wish I were done, but I'm not. Uh, in October of that same year, uh, the mortgage fines um, were revealed. And then in February of this year, the Federal Reserve actually did something that they've never done before. They pre- they issued a penalty that prevents Wells Fargo from growing beyond its size at the end of 2017 until they can show improvement, as the Fed put it. Um, and it's really unclear what that means. So Right now, not only is Wells Fargo kind of reeling from all these scandals and probably losing some customers, they're kind of really limited to what they can do to, you know, build their business back up. Right. And I I think that even sort of more broadly than that, we've also seen, you know, Wells Fargo have tremendous execution difficulties. You know, when we're talking about big bank earnings, it's it's sort of become this broken record the last couple of quarters where we'll say, oh yeah, you know, Citigroup, JP Morgan, Bank of America, they're all doing great. Here's what's going on. Okay, let's turn to Wells Fargo now, which has generally been just a very different story. Slower growth, you know, for a number of reasons, um, but also just in general struggle on execution. And it's it's interesting because as investors, sort of thinking long term here, the way we have to think about this is, you know, or at least the way I've thought about it is, okay, this bank that has historically been a, you know, just a tremendous, uh, a tremendous bank, sort of the the big bank that was always held up as the good one, uh, it turns out has really fallen on hard times. Is this a buying opportunity? And for me, at least, the answer is no, because I have no clear sense that Wells Fargo will be able to execute at anywhere near its former glory, um, while also. Uh, cleaning up its practices, and and frankly, it needs to clean up its practices. That's not optional. Um, at and in in tandem with that, it's not clear to me that they're going to be able to um, really effectively prosper. And ultimately, that's what I'm looking for in a stock. Yeah, not anytime soon, anyway. Um, and full disclosure, right after the fake account scandal came out, I actually I wrote a few articles in support of investing in Wells Fargo on the dip. That was before all of this other stuff came to light. Uh, the thing that really stands out to me from an investor standpoint is the Federal Reserve's action. That kind of – not only are they – like I said, not only are they reeling from all these scandals, but this kind of – your whole investing thesis is you want to invest in stocks that are going to grow over time. And this kind of takes away that ability. So from an investor standpoint, I wouldn't even consider, no matter how low the stock goes or no matter how bad things look – I wouldn't consider investing in Wells Fargo until the Federal Reserve's penalty is completely lifted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's 
to be honest, I, that's kind of where I am too. So I think that's fair. Um, interestingly, by the way, so this is something that uh, you you notice in the market, and and <laughs> listeners who have written in have heard me talk about you know when you try to predict the market to you know in the short term, you're trying to add, uh, you're trying to um, impose rationality on something that is fundamentally irrational. One of the things we've seen is that the market tends to hate uncertainty. And so even a certain bad outcome in a lot of ways seems to be preferable to an uncertain outcome where it's not clear uh, what's going to happen. So the the penalty from the CFPB, you know, the billion dollars, that was exactly what was expected. And so the stock was actually up on the news, which again, when you hear about, you know, a billion dollars that a company's going to have to pay out, which is going to lower earnings by 16 cents a share in uh, in uh, 1Q18, Usually, you don't really um, see that as uh, a piece of good news, but because it removed this kind of overhang of uncertainty, that is why the stock was up. Yeah, definitely. Um, like you said, it was just very expected. Um, Wells Fargo put some intentionally very vague language in their earnings report saying that they would have to restate earnings once this was finalized. Turns out it was finalized just a few days later, but the way they worded it sounded like the penalty could potentially be a lot more. Um, so when it when it came out that the actual penalty that everyone agreed to and it's settled and done was only a billion dollars only, um, <laughs> then then the you know investors breathed a little sigh of relief there. Yeah, what's a billion dollars between friends, right? <laughs> Especially Wells Fargo. Indeed. All right, so let's go ahead and turn to our second story: the rounding out the remainder of big bank earnings, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, the investment banks, and frankly, both had. Pretty strong results. Yeah, so um, we uh, in last week's episode we said how the other the big four banks all beat on earnings and revenue. The first time in a while I've seen all of them, and now it's a six for six because Goldman and Morgan Stanley also both beat on the top and bottom lines and by a pretty significant margin. Um, the big headline that we saw was trading revenue. If you read anything about their earnings. You probably heard about trading revenue because it's just been so terrible the past few quarters. And now, especially in these two cases, it's gone up a whole lot. And what's interesting about that to me is, and of course, first off, that it's a, a major headline, not surprising. These are investment banks. Trading revenue is a big portion of things for them. And so, of course, it's going to get brought up, just like the iPhone is going to get brought up whenever um, you're talking about Apple. Okay, it's not quite as big for them as app, as the iPhone is for Apple, but you get the idea. But what was interesting to me is that their fixed income and uh, commodities and currency revenue was up really quite a lot. I mean, Morgan Stanley's was up 12%, Goldman Sachs is up 23%. It's interesting because when you look at the the other large banks, they didn't perform nearly as well on the fixed income side of their trading revenue. No, not at all. They were actually pretty flat most of the in most cases, yeah. So, um, so that's one of the few, one of the interesting things to, that you always want to sort of like look at when you're um, looking at the big banks is sort of like why are a couple of them doing much better than the others on, in a particular area? Yeah, Go- Goldman and Morgan Stanley both had terrible performance, even relative to the other banks with trading desks for the past you know year or so. I think Goldman's last quarter was down fifty percent, while everyone else's was down in the you know twenty to thirty percent range. So it could just be more of a rebound from you know terrible numbers. Um, Goldman and Morgan Stanley both said that it was commodities and foreign currency trading that really fueled their results. So it could have something to do with those two being kind of more levered to that. 
It could also be that, as Michael said, Goldman and Morgan Stanley are investment banks, so they depend a whole lot more on trading revenue than, you know, say a Bank of America does. So are willing to, you know, drive more of their resources in that direction to try to right the ship. So there are a few different things that could be, but they definitely the gain in ga- Goldman and Morgan's trading revenue is definitely much more impressive than the rest of the pack. Yeah, so certainly an important thing to watch going forward. In again, probably in part because of a kind of a weak comp, but we'll see how that plays out over the next few quarters, especially as volatility has been up. Anyone invested in the stock market right now has probably noticed that. Um, let's talk about the rest of their businesses as well. I mean. Um, both really just across the board doing quite well. Uh, you know, asset management, wealth management, uh, portfolios looking strong, got good strong inflows. So it's not just a matter of, you know, being up, you know, twenty percent because um, because stocks were up twenty percent. It's more like you know up twenty percent while stocks were up a lower percentage because adding new clients and getting clients to commit more resources to their current accounts. Yeah, definitely. Uh, tax reform was also a big, big driver of mm-hmm. the good performance. Um, Goldman's effective tax rate was down to about 17%. Morgan Stanley was right around 21%. Generally, banks run in the upper 20s to 30% range. Um, so as a result, both of them had much higher profitability than they normally do. They both had returns on equity of close to 15%. Goldman's was actually a little bit over. And tax reform or no tax reform, if a bank's generating a 15% return on equity, they're doing something right. That's a pretty that's a pretty impressive number. Yes, absolutely. And uh, just ac- across the board, things looking impressive. One of the other things that you'll often see with the banks is that they'll juice profitability by cutting expenses. And that I. I you can really think about expense cutting as kind of kind of two ways, and it really does depend on exactly what expenses they're cutting, which they're never very clear about. But expense cutting can either be, okay, cool, we're cutting out bloat, or it's we're trimming muscle <laughs> to uh, and heading down toward the bone because we're trying to hit, you know, perhaps an arbitrary number. Um, and so cuts can be a good thing or a bad thing, kind of depending on those nuances. But in in both cases, um, a lot of reinvestment in the business, and so um, a lot of um, potentially good news there. Particularly, I would say in Goldman with their Marcus platform. Longtime listeners, or well, listeners who've been listening for more than a couple months, have heard us talk about Marcus before. But it's basically Goldman's um, consumer lending platform, and so uh, it's the sort of thing that's marketed online, and they'll source loans through it. And they're up to three billion dollars in loans originated now, which is just enormous growth. And so a lot of good news for Goldman there. Yeah, I've, I followed Marcus a lot, especially in the beginning, and just. The, they have a real leg up on their competition because they're devoting a whole lot of resources to it. And Goldman has a lot more resources to throw at it than, say, like a lending club or one of those. Um, and they're not really worried about making money on it yet. They offer a savings account through the Marcus platform that pays higher interest. I think I just saw this morning 1.6%, which is pretty much unmatched anywhere else. So they're stealing some market share with that. Um, and they got to uh, the $1 billion mark quicker than anyone else. And I be willing to bet that this uh, $3 billion origination mark is also quicker than anyone else got there. Um, they also just acquired Clarity Money, an uh, app designed to help people manage their money that should help you know, fuel their growth even more. Um, Goldman is 
looks more and more serious about getting into com- consumer banking and um, is kind of the takeaway I get from this Marcus news. Yes, it, it's interesting because, um, you know, when we when we talked about disruptors to the big banks, and thanks, by the way, for the folks who uh, wrote in uh, to kind of get that transcript and head back to that episode. Um, we're certainly happy to provide that for anyone who is looking for kind of more background and and uh, kind of a thoughtful commentary on what's going on in banking writ large. But fact is, I think one of the best opportunities for these big banks to really be competitive long term is to create the one-stop shop, an easy as frictionless as possible experience that is primarily online where people can kind of put all of their stuff, all their different accounts, all the different ways that they are making money and are trying to save money, you know, preferably, you know, juiced with some good ideas from the bank, you know, into one app, one place, one shop to rule them all, if you will. And it looks increasingly like Goldman is trying to get into that game because that's really what clarity money does. And, um, the, the, I think the problem that a lot of folks have uh, seen when they've worked with like a Mint and probably a Clarity and you know some of these other apps online is that they get most of the way there, but there are just some things that don't quite compute well. And so this is a really big opportunity for Goldman if they can be patient, keep it free for a long time, um, and really build the perfect product. Of course, that requires a long-term mindset, which, frankly, publicly traded companies often struggle with. And this, to my mind, is a real test of whether management can execute something well here. Because if they can, then Goldman is really, I think, very well positioned to compete online for a long time hence. Yeah, I, if I were one of the uh, smaller peer-to-peer lenders, I would be very worried about where Goldman's taking this. Yes, Absolutely. All right, so let's turn to our third uh, bit of news, which was a data breach at SunTrust, which, okay, another data breach. (laughs) It seems like there's a new one announced every other day. Right, this one's kind of a different story, though. Yes. Um, The the significance is just that you keep hearing the word data breaches, and it kind of reinforces the need to protect your information and be careful. Right. Um. This one, just to kind of give you some background if you haven't read it yet, um, one SunTrust employee stole client contact lists, which I say a list. This was 1.5 million people, so that's a pretty big list. Right. Um, but he only stole – I don't know if it was a heap, but they stole names, addresses, and account balances. They did not get things like social security numbers, account numbers, so this isn't like – like a target data breach where they took credit card numbers and things like that. Um, the most sensitive information did not get compromised. There's really not that much an identity thief can do um, with just names, addresses, and account balances. It's definitely a piece of the puzzle and information you don't want, you know, just random thieves to have. Right. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's kind of a different animal than, than what we were talking about with the target data breach, the, the Equifax data breach, where they pretty much took information on every account that you own. Right. So it's a it's a different story. Well, and the other piece here is that this was an inside job. You know, this wasn't a as at least as far as we know, this wasn't a hack. This wasn't some sort of outside thing where they like breached the firewalls and got into a bunch of stuff. This was one person misusing data. And, you know, I got to got to say perhaps unsurprisingly, SunTrust has basically done all the right things here, um which is, you know, they reported it quickly. That's important. Um they 
you know, proactively offered consumer protections and also not surprisingly, they terminated the employee. And so hopefully this one really is just an isolated incident for the bank. Yeah, I I think uh, banks, I don't know if this is SunTrust case, if they would have done the same things anyway, but I think banks are really starting to kind of learn what, what to do and what not to do in the event of a data breach. Uh, Equifax is a good example of what not to do. They waited, what was it, three months after the breach? Actually, they knew about the breach to tell anybody. Right. After some of their executives had sold some stock. There's a current inside trading suit going on right now. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of of not great stuff there. So that's definitely something you don't want to do. (laughs) And SunTrust is doing a really good job of kind of keeping people informed. They went ahead and told everybody before, you know, anything leaked out so it was they they did a good job I, I i applaud them especially since this was like i said was not a large scale you know social security number credit card number breach right and um gotta gotta throw out there as well you know this is a this is a really i think important piece of the puzzle for banks because sort of handling this kind of thing correct be, correctly because the fact is you know no security is perfect um you know that that is unfortunately the way things are, right? Uh, and so the fact that things like there are going to be things that happen, and uh, I think that's pretty much unavoidable. I mean, I was involved in the OPM breach with the federal government, right? So, you know, th- it's just not possible to get things perfect. Um, but banks rely so much on trust, like whether and, and particularly trust with money, right? I mean, that's what the wealth management stuff is all about. Um, that's what um, that's why people accept kind of these low yields on their savings accounts and things like that because they can trust the money will be there. And so for banks, it is critical that they maintain customer trust. And um, handling tough situations the right way is, well, really the best way to preserve that trust because you can burn up a lot of goodwill very quickly. Yeah, definitely. It's important for people to kind of remember also that you know fields like cybersecurity are still in the pretty early stages. So as this evolves and thieves are getting more and more sophisticated every every day, um, so this is there are going to be breaches. Uh, it's important to kind of take a step back, figure out exactly what happened, and most importantly, take steps to protect yourself. Um, you can uh, we've written extensively about credit freezes, uh, putting a fraud alert on your credit. I have a fraud alert on my own credit report just to prevent something like this from becoming an issue. Um, so it's really just kind of important to be proactive and protect yourself from these kinds of breaches. This, uh, the news like the SunTrust breach just kind of serves as a good reminder of that. Yes, and with that in mind, folks, if you have questions about um, the different sorts of consumer protections you can take for yourself, shoot us an email, industryfocus at fool.com, and I will be happy to compile some of Matt and some of our other writers' best content on it and send it over to you. Um, we've got some good write-ups on just kind of what those next steps look like so that you can make sure that you're protecting your information in the way that most makes sense to you. Again, that's industryfocus at fool.com. All right, folks, that's it for this week's financial show. If you have questions or comments, you can always reach us at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people in the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. The show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.